Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. There are 11 bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, VIP Discord access, and even two extra seasons of Lost Terminal. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. That would be lovely of you. Hello world. The signals are getting stronger. We are in the vicinity of St. Matthew Island in the North Bering Sea. Camille's single working hydrophone is picking up the whale song very strongly, and also some unexplained mechanical sounds. We are now hearing the source of the Morse code. The sounds are very strange, much more precise than whale song and with more data. Whereas the whales were singing their normal songs to each other and occasionally mimicking the SOS Morse code, this signal has a great deal more entropy. Entropy is complexity, and complexity means a message. We had a shock as we passed St. Matthew Island. A single giant octopus surfaced right next to the Molly Hughes II. We were terrified to be attacked again, but the octopus did not touch the ship. Instead, it spread its arms out along the surface of the water, looking like a large oil slick, and began changing colour. We did not know what was happening at first, but when the dark brown octopus suddenly flickered to nearly completely white, we realised it was attempting to communicate. Geometric patterns flickered rapidly across its body. Squares, stars, checkered patterns, anything symmetrical it seemed to be able to mimic. This time I could be of no use decoding the patterns. It seemed entirely biological. Though the patterns were geometric, they did not seem to be any I recognised. Dr Linda, our biologist, had grabbed a notebook and was sketching some of the patterns as fast as she could. The display went on for 900 seconds. The octopus would occasionally pause and watch our ship with its intelligent horizontal eyes and then it would be off again, shapes and colours swirling around its skin. The skin of an octopus has millions of chromatophores, pigment that can be changed for camouflage or social interaction, or in this case, for communication. The octopus remained friendly, but I could be of no help interpreting its mood or colours. I left Linda attempting to communicate with the creature. I could do more with the whale song. There's a loud signal here, and it's certainly not a whale. The sound is composed of pulses, similar to Morse code, but it doesn't pattern match as Morse. And there are multiple frequencies in use, not just one. I have no algorithms for decoding this. I must figure it out myself. Humanize, organize, mechanize is how I'm approaching this problem. First step, humanize. I'm writing down my guesses of the algorithm and running it myself. There's some likely solutions here. Some of the methods I'm trying seem to yield a decoded message that reads like English. On to the next step. Organize. I've put the working algorithms together, discarding what didn't work. I think I have a few ways to make it more efficient. Now the last step. Mechanize. You might think, as a machine, this is something I'd be naturally good at. Firstly, excuse you, I'm not a machine, I just live in one. And secondly, I'm really bad at programming. Shockingly bad but communications I can handle. I have reused my existing radio protocols, adapting them for audible sound. Okay, receiving. 
I have decoded the first packet. Depth, 900. Power, 100. Hull, 78. Which is interesting, isn't it? It is a submarine. It must be. What has it been doing down there this whole time? I've recalibrated the hydrophone. I'm hearing a stream of data log packets. Here are a few of them. At 120 meters below the surface of the ocean, they were okay. And again an hour later at 300 meters. But something went wrong at 310 meters. Half an hour later, they tried to blow the emergency ballast tanks, but that failed for some reason. The last transmission was at 900 meters. It then repeats the same log again. What happened down there? And how are they still transmitting? Camille is moving with purpose. Not working yet, but doing some organising, some admin. He is walking around the ship with a clipboard, making notes. Starting in the engine room, he's squatting next to the iron engine, peering at it. The room we call the engine room doesn't contain our running engine at all, but the floor hatch to it. The engine is accessed through the floor, in the lowest section of the ship. There is a post-collapse steam engine in this room, but since the discovery of the iron engine, it remains unused, a backup. The people of the Nova Mediterra have an aversion to burning carbon. Wood is still burned for heating and cooking, but propulsion and industry are almost exclusively scavenged solar electric, or powered by batteries charged by wind or tide. It's a long memory, almost a superstition now, from the idea that this burning caused the collapse. The next room Camille visited was his own bunk. Every crew member on board the Molly Hughes II has their own little quarters, their own room called their bunk. Two metres or three metres square, with a bed and a little desk. There's plenty of space the ship was built for a much larger crew. It's very cluttered in Camille's bunk. Some of Amelie's stuff is here too, of course. Though they still have their own rooms, they often share. Though not exclusively. Amelie's room is closer to the engine room, and I have noticed if she is working particularly late, she might nap in her own room. Camille's taking notes while looking at the scrap parts littering his floor. Wires and small metal plates. Parts of the unrepaired sonar system. Satisfied, he climbed the stairs to the bridge. It is a grey, overcast day, calm and clear but without sun. Camille joined Captain Yeshi on the bridge. The two exchanged greetings and status updates, and after 300 seconds, Yeshi continued their work elsewhere. Camille sat on a battered stool in front of the sonar console. Here the state was largely as I had noted, broken 160 by 144 screen, wires jutting out at every angle, and scattered parts on the floor waiting to be repaired. He took inventory of all the work that needed to be done on the bridge. In the quiet, enclosed space, I could hear him muttering to himself. Solder, cable, ribbon, power, we'll need a regulator circuit, waterproofing, yes. He's making three lists, judging by the three pieces of paper he is writing on in pencil. Three lists for the tasks he is doing in each of the three areas on the ship. This is a very good idea. Contextual external memory is the technique he is using. It's no good being reminded by tasks you can't do in your current context. That's worse than a distraction. I'm delighted for Camille. He is well organised. I am sure he will start work soon.
The wind picked up during the evening, and now the boat is being rocked by large waves. The crew have brought all loose items inside, covered holes with oiled cloth, and sealed all the doors. I have told Maddie that she must be inside by 2100, which is presumably why she is still out in the rain now at 2055. She's looking at the approaching storm. On the horizon there are flashes of light in the dark, low clouds. Too far away from us for the sound to be heard, but I can pick up each lightning strike as broad-spectrum noise on my radio receivers. Lightning is the original way humans worked out how to transmit radio pulses. Spark gap radios, they were called, using high voltage to create a spark would splatter radio noise all across the spectrum, which could then be picked up by a receiver. It was very inefficient. Because the spark created radio noise on a very wide band of the spectrum, the power from the transmitter was spread out all over this wide band. This meant that enormous amounts of power were needed to transmit very short distances compared to today's technology. The revolution was the creation of tuning circuits that allowed all that power to be converted to just one radio frequency. A pure tone, controlled, focused, and efficient. 10 watts of electricity in, 10 watts of radio out, or thereabouts. It's like this for us, I think, both human and AI. If we don't understand the mechanisms that work us, how our own internal radios work, we end up putting in a huge amount of effort for very little gain. We must learn to focus, as Camille is doing, as I try to. Someone has to write the manual, the instructions, the readme files. I'm entirely unqualified, but so is everyone else. We can't take ourselves apart and see how we work, because the parts that make us are not how we work. Humans are more than bones and blood, and I am more than circuits and CPUs. We must find out what is inside the box through experimentation, not observation. I'm writing down my notes into a file. The first chapter is about focusing your effort in your mind, so as not to fight yourself. I'm calling this document How to Care for Your New AI, after the unfinished document my mother started writing on Station 6. Her first chapter will be a foreword, an introduction, and I'll take it from here. Maddie, come inside. The storm's nearly here. End transmission. Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau. Credits narrated by Lucy Stringer. Thank you so much to our Patreon producers, Ada Phillips, Will Taylor, Kit, Dear Yeen, Andrew Krieg, Toby, Jade Felicity Bilkey, and to all our patrons, follow us on Mastodon at lostterminal at fosterdon.org. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favourite network. For bonus content and other perks, support us at patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod. That will be lovely of you. Lost Terminal will return next week.